1 Corinthians will be in chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10 to begin with this morning. The title of our sermon is Ordinary and Extraordinary, and our key words for our worshipers in training are excellent, work, and glory. Now this morning we are bringing our ordinary series to a close, and in doing so, I hope, I hope that you have been helped along the way as we've considered the very ordinary ways that God calls us to live as Christians in this world. We've looked at several things. We've looked at the ways in which we are called to pursue some rather simple, ordinary things. And we've admitted together that they tend to be very difficult for us a lot of times. But we've seen the ordinary Christian life is difficult because at some level, each of us struggles with pride. We're constantly fighting worldly influence. And we have this desire, as we sang about earlier, we have this desire to be known. We want to be somebody in this world. But God's way of working isn't most often through radical advances in the world. Instead, he works providentially through his ordinary means of grace, giving us all of the reason in the world to live according to his word. Knowing that his promises are sure things, that they will come to pass, because he has a good and perfect will. And all that happens, he is included within it. And as we utilize his means of grace, as we've talked about, we're all the more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So we have to ask, can we be content with that? Is that enough for us? You know, the majority of our lives are spent doing chores, spent doing work. And so we have, to, we have to get to the place to where we can find contentment in these things because what God is doing and what God is accomplishing in each of us is enough. But it's so mundane, it's so predictable, it's so ordinary. And in fact, we have a call in our lives to not only be content in these things, but to find joy in them, knowing that I am doing it all with a purpose. And then we've asked, how does all of that translate in our relationship to God's people in the church? What are our gifts? How are we using those gifts for the common good? And how am I growing up as a Christian in the midst of all of it? Well, we've considered all of this, and if you've missed any of it, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. But we wrap it all up this morning, and I want us to think about the balance. It'd be very easy to hear all that we've talked about and sort of think, well, we're just being told to live mediocre lives that don't really accomplish much. But the intention of our series has not been to throw a wet blanket on godly passions and pursuits. We would have absolutely no missionary efforts, no heroes of the faith if we were seeking to eliminate godly passion and pursuit. That's not the point at all. We don't want to minimize the excellent things that God has done and is doing through his people at all. In fact, we believe something quite different. The more we embrace our calling in the ordinary, 
the more we are prepared in our daily habits and practices so that we can foster deeper growth in grace, more effective outreach, we can have a more sustainable vision of loving and serving others in the long haul. So this has by no means been a call to sit back and watch the world go by while we wait for Jesus to return. It's a call to invest in the very things that are often ignored when we set a goal, and that goal is just to be radical in the world. We're actually calling all of us to do the ordinary things that God calls us to in an extraordinary way, with excellence. But here's what I hope we can keep in mind that we've gleaned from this series over several weeks. The church doesn't need more heroes. Yes, we have heroes of the faith. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about superheroes, rescuers, deliverers. The church already has a hero. His name is Jesus. But so often Christians are set on being heroes. So we don't need to dare to be Daniel. Because even the most heroically faithful men and women in the Bible, at their very best days and times, fell short of the kind of Savior all of us need. And in fact, they too need to be redeemed from guilt and sin and the power of sin and the bondage it brings. So we don't need another superhero. We need God to descend to the earth to rescue us. And when he rescues us, he sets us on course to live our lives in very specific yet very ordinary ways. And when we do, the outcome is extraordinary. So that's our focus this morning. Dwelling in, being content with, finding joy in, and fulfilling the ordinariness of the Christian life in such a way that the outcome is extraordinary. How do we do that? How do we get there? I'm going to give us our foundational duty first, and then we'll look at how we can strive as God's people to get there. So first, what is our foundational duty as Christians? In fact, we can ask the perennial question of all of the world's philosophy. Why am I here? What am I to do? What is the purpose of my life There's a lot that can be said in response to that question. However, the clearest summary is found in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. And surely you are very familiar with this text. And so let it be our guide this morning. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. The Apostle Paul writes this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is, at the very foundational level, the purpose of our lives. And whatever we do, and however we do it, we do it to the glory of God. And that is the most important aim of life in anything that happens. Now, what we could do is say, you know, we're Christians, so we need to be extraordinary, and if we're going to glorify God, then... When we live out, we, we need to live outside of sort of this ordinary life. We need to live radical lives. We could say that. But that's kind of useless if you think about it. It really doesn't mean anything. What does it mean? How realistic is that? 
does God really want all of his people to sort of jettison normal life and live on the edge as radicals? Yeah, sure, we have bills to pay and households to take care of and children to raise and jobs to do and a church to serve, but let's find a way to do all of that as quickly as possible so we can live really radical lives. And even if, let's say even if something like that was in order, how does it happen apart from a sturdy foundation? The very things we've looked at over the past few months, we've said they're very ordinary in this world. You see, we can no more stir up passion for the extraordinary than we can will ourselves a passion for love. Brothers and sisters, it is only when we discover the worthiness of the purpose we set our lives to that we can find ourselves pursuing those things. In other words, no matter what I do in life, no matter what my goals are, unless I find them to be worthy, I'm not really going to expend much effort to get there, right? So what good is it for anyone to say, you know, the real problem is here that we have Christians that just aren't radical enough. About what? For what purpose? To what end? We need to have, above all else, our sights set on the ultimate purpose that God has called us to, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then we need to see the value in that being our ultimate end, if we're going to pursue it with any kind of perseverance and any kind of excellence. I want you to see something here. It's really interesting how Paul addresses what this goal in life ought to be. Notice something about his exhortation there in verse 31. He doesn't say, when you go out street preaching in North Korea, or when you're giving away all that you have to live under a bridge with homeless people, then you can do something to the glory of God. No, what does he say? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, eating or drinking, Seriously, Paul, there's very little in this world that's as ordinary to daily life as eating and drinking. These are very common elements in daily life, and for some of us, more so than others. And yet, even ordinary meals are to be used to draw our attention once again to glorifying and enjoying God who provides them who sets them before us and who gives us taste buds to enjoy them, who gives us bodies that need them. This is our purpose. This is what we were created to do. Romans 11.36 says, All things are from him and through him and to him. To him be glory forever. Hebrews 2.10, All things exist for him and by him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it like this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. God is the most valuable being in all the universe. And we are a very, very distant second. And since God is the ultimate value in the universe, it is only right, it is only fitting that he himself is honest about that. that he tell us so, and that for our good, he seeks our love and our admiration. But it's for our good. 
So this is the foundational goal. This is our purpose, God's glory. And that happens not just when we're on a spiritual high note or when we're handing out tracts on the street corner or when we're at the end of an hour-long prayer session. It happens when you eat and when you drink and when you're scrubbing your dishes and changing diapers and filling out expense reports and stocking shelves and writing papers and mowing the lawn. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But what does that look like? It's easy to talk about. It sounds great. It's very spiritual. But how does that look in our lives practically? How do we glorify God in all that we do? I want to turn our attention to three different ways we can do that this morning. The first is this. Loving God and loving our neighbor through thankful obedience to God's commands. Loving God and loving our neighbor through thankful obedience to God's commands. In Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Christianity, the Christian life, is essentially a response on our part to the revelation of the Creator as a God of love. God is a tri-personal being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who so loves ungodly humans that the Father has given over to the Son. I just think about that for a moment. You and I are gifts from the Father that he gives over to the Son if we are Christians. And we might not think we're a very great gift, but Jesus thinks we're a great gift. So great that he has given himself for us. And he gives us life in return. And the Father and the Son together now give us the Spirit that we would be saved as sinners from unimaginable misery and leads us to unimaginable glory. And believing in and being overwhelmed by this amazing reality of divine love generates and sustains our love toward God and then our love toward our neighbors. You see, so our love, any love that is within us, is an expression of our attitude for God's graciousness and his love toward us. Our love should be modeled on God's gracious love toward us. This is the primary way God is glorified in our lives, loving God and loving our neighbor. But what is that really? When we really understand what Jesus is saying, we realize he's pointing us to the measure and test of love, which is wholehearted and unqualified obedience to what he has commanded. That's how we show God we love him. How do I show that I love God? I display my love for God most clearly when I am fulfilling commandments one through four of the Ten Commandments. The measure and test of love to our neighbors is laying down our lives for them. How do I show that I love my neighbor? I'm loving my neighbor when I am most fulfilling commandments 5 through 10. 
in the Ten Commandments. So this love includes giving and spending ourselves up to the maximum level for the well-being of others. True love for neighbor is utterly unconcerned for oneself. In fact, the total lack of self-concern that comes in neighbor love is breathtaking when we see it at play. It seeks their good. And the true measure of it is how much it gives to that end, how selfless it is. And this love is the hallmark of Christian life. It's Christian love. It's only a love that can be had in the Christian life. It's giving and 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 and expecting nothing in return because we have already received what is greatest and most ultimate, which is God's love toward us in Jesus Christ. But we have to keep in mind that God teaches us in his word that true love is a principle, action, and not an emotion. It is a purpose of honoring and benefiting the other party. There are times when you love someone, but you sure don't feel like it. So, I know that many of you don't want to admit it, but some of you love me. And yet... There may have been times when I've said something or done something that has upset you. And perhaps you were warranted in not liking what I said or did. But you're still here and you're still listening. You're still praying for me. You're still taking care of me and my family. You're still serving me as your pastor. That's love. That is love. There will be times in our relationships to one another that we absolutely do not feel warm and affectionate. But there's still love. So in terms of our neighbor love, it's a matter of doing. And it's doing out of compassion for their need, whether we feel personal affection for them or not. So when it comes to loving God, Jesus tells us very simply, if you love me, You will do my commandments. You will obey. It's the same thing we tell our children, right? How do they express their love toward us as their parents? Through obedience to us. So the Bible says, right? Their love toward their parents is by honoring their parents, by obeying their parents. Do they do it perfectly? No, by no means. But when they do, we know there is love. We know there is true love and commitment. And when it comes to loving our neighbor, Jesus tells us that by this love, we will be known. How are we identified as the people of God? By the love that we show for our neighbor. The selfless giving of ourselves time and time again with no expectation for return. So loving God and loving our neighbor out of thankful obedience to God is one very important way that God says we are able to fulfill our purpose in bringing him glory. Secondly, we glorify God by trusting him that his promises are sure and he will bring all things to pass according to his will. 
When the Apostle Paul writes about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, he says this, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now notice, there's a cause and effect. He grew strong in his faith. He trusted God. And as a result of him trusting God, he glorified God. Now, I'm going to guess that for most of us, our greatest struggle to trust God is not when we're in the midst of trial and suffering that comes to us. That may sound strange, but I think our greatest struggle to trust God is really when we're in the midst of daily life. Tragedy strikes, and in fact, It comes to some of us more often than others, but as Christians, we so often cling to God's promises most tightly when tragedy comes into our life and when suffering shows up. And that is surely God's design in our sufferings, that we will trust him all the more. But it's when life just sort of goes by each day and things are happening that happen in routine God is glorified when I'm trusting him even when everything seems okay. When I have a job and the bills are paid and there's food on the table and the family is healthy, in the midst of those times, he's glorified when I still say all of this is the result of God's promise to take care of his children. I'm trusting that what he has said is true and the Lord has given and given and if the Lord takes away, glory be to the Lord. He's glorified in our trusting him when things seem great and when things seem difficult, when we are suffering and facing tragedy and disappointment and setback and when we are experiencing the greatest high in life. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews explains the certainty of God's promise. There's no way, there's no how that the promise of God will not come to pass. It's a sure thing. It's as good as done. And grammatically, he writes it that way, that it is as if it is already accomplished. And in that, he says in in verse 19 of Hebrews 6 that the reality, this truth that God's promise will come to pass is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, we're in South Georgia, so at some point, most of you have been on a boat. It's not my favorite thing in the world, but I've been on a few boats in South Georgia over the past 12 years of living here. So you know... If you get out in the water on a boat, especially in the ocean, if you're going to stay put in one place, you have to drop your anchor. Why? Because you have to make sure that you have yourself anchored or else the current will pull you away from that spot pretty quickly. It's quite easy to lose your boat without an anchor. And what makes an anchor good? What is it about an anchor? that gives you security, that gives you the ability to trust that it's going to do what it's supposed to do. There has to be two things about it that give you some sense of security. First, it has to be attached to you in some way, attached to your boat. It has to be committed to you. You can't break the bond between you and the anchor. 
Then secondly, the anchor has to go into a realm where we are not able to go. It doesn't just go into the water to give us security, right? We don't need the anchor just to be dragged along in the water. We're already in the water. The water is the problem. The water moves. The water changes. The water is in flux. It's way down deep in the water where we can't even see. That's where the problem is, where it can be solved. So what the anchor has to do is it has to go to the place where we cannot go. It has to go to the bottom of the ocean where the, the rocks are, where the solid ground is where it's immovable and stable and permanent. And so the hope is that the anchor is committed to us to do what it is designed to do and to go into the water all the way down where we can't see and to grasp on to the floor of the ocean to lock us in, to keep us stable. Now, like the boat anchor, you and I need an anchor for our souls, Our souls are the same way. We need a spiritual anchor lest we just sort of float away and drift off. If you live in time and space and history, it is like water. Nothing is secure here. Nothing. Everything changes. Everything changes. Philosopher... Hercules once said, he was trying to get this point across, he said, you could not step twice in the same river. It's true, isn't it? The water is changing irretrievably. You can't step out in the same day twice. You can't go home to the same family twice. Everything is changing constantly. Every tree is coming down. Every mountain is being ground down into dust. Every planet is eventually going to burn out. Every sun is going out. Every star. Everything is changing. Absolutely everything. Every second of every day. So what are you going to do? Where are we going to turn if our souls aren't anchored Because we, too, will just go with the drift. A Puritan pastor, Richard Hooker, wrote this. The earth may shake. The pillars of the world may tremble under us. The countenance of the heaven may be appalled. The sun may lose his light. The moon her beauty. The stars their glory. But concerning the man that trusts in God, what is there in the world that shall change his heart, overthrow his faith, alter his affections towards God or the affections of God to him? You see, God is glorified in our trusting in him because it's us realizing that nothing in this world can give to us what only he can offer. He who is our anchor. Only God and Jesus Christ can be the anchor of our soul so that we are immovable because it is inevitable that trial and struggle and suffering will come into our lives. It's not possible to escape it. And nothing in this world can give me hope, can give me peace, and can give me joy and satisfaction, and most ultimately, everlasting life apart from Christ. And so our trust in God brings him glory because our trust in God proves that our hope, no matter what comes in our life, it's not wrapped up as we sing in our earthly fame or treasure. It's in God alone. 
knowing that he has a plan and that his plan is good and it's wise. God's plan is perfect and it's all worth everything that I have to endure. And how do I know God's promise that I might trust in him all the more? How do I know what he's promised? I have to know his word. I have to know him in prayer. I have to know him in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. And I know him in his working through his people. We must be intertwined with Jesus as he is intertwined with us. He told us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of good, nothing of worth is produced apart from Christ. And no level of trusting God is possible apart from union with Christ and ongoing, growing communion with him. So we glorify God by loving him and loving our neighbor and by trusting God and his promises no matter what comes into our life. And thirdly, we bring glory to God by giving thanks to him in all circumstances whether we perceive them to be good or bad. In Psalm 50, 23, we read the words of the Lord. He says this, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Now, there are certainly times in our lives as Christians when it is a lot easier to give thanks to God than others. We may not be willing to admit that. But the human heart is fickle and oftentimes very weak. It's a natural thing that we have thankfulness when something great or obvious comes our way. But are we giving thanks to God in all circumstances of life? Is that the sacrifice of our lives? If we truly believe that God is at work in every circumstance of life, whether we perceive it to be good or bad, and if we believe that all of those circumstances are designed by God to bring about his ultimate purpose of glorifying himself, should we not give thanks in those circumstances? Well, Pastor Nick, you don't know my circumstances. You don't live the life that I live, having to endure the things I have to endure. And you're right, I don't. I have been blessed beyond anything I could imagine in my life. But that doesn't mean I don't face trials. And it also doesn't mean that your trials aren't for your good. In fact, we glorify God and fulfill our purpose as his children when we understand that in the midst of our difficulty and trying circumstances of life, that his word is still true. Remember the previous point, trusting God in all circumstances? Well, when I can trust that his word is true, I can now give thanks to him because I am reminded that no matter what I endure, no matter what comes my way, he is fulfilling the greatest promise of working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, even if that ultimate end is death because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But in order for us to get there, And for us to see in the midst of the greatest tragedy that may come in our life with any sense of understanding, we have to get rid of our superficial, fleshly definition of what's good on our own terms. We have to trade in what we assume is good for 
a more biblically robust definition of good. In other words, our definition of good should be God's definition of good. And his definition for us is that, and we looked at this a few weeks ago in Sunday school, that we are being conformed to the image of his son. We're being made more and more like Jesus. So we may not know anything else at all about specific circumstances and pains and sufferings and brokenness in our lives, but we can know and we can give thanks for this one thing at least. All things are happening in my life by God's design for the purpose of conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ, his son. And so the ultimate good is that God is making us more holy. God is filling us with greater love. God is bringing about greater humility. God is developing us in patience. And he is cultivating our trust that we will be more like Jesus Christ. And so in no way does this minimize our pain and our suffering and our trials and our hardships in life. Those things are real. But it does give them purpose. And so in the midst of those, when everyone in the world around us might be asking the why question, uh, we can answer. I don't know all the reasons why, but I do know this one thing, that I can give thanks to God. And in my giving thanks to God, he is glorified. And I'm giving thanks because I know that in the midst of this, he's using my circumstances to smooth out the rough edges of my life so that I will be more and more conformed to the image of his dear son. And when we give thanks to God in our circumstances, we glorify him, as he told us in Psalm 50. So there are three ways in which our ordinary lives are lived with the purpose that God has designed for us to glorify him. Loving God and loving our neighbor through thankful obedience to his commands. Trusting God that his promises are sure and he will bring all things to pass according to his good and perfect will. And giving thanks to God that in all circumstances, whether we perceive them to be good or bad. One of the things in this world that I've sought to bring change to is the cliche graduation speeches we hear every year when we go to high school and college graduations. When I've had opportunities to address students as they graduate, I've sought to communicate a very different truth than what it may actually seem the opposite of what is most often stated. And here it is. It's not likely that you will change the world So don't make that your goal. Now, no doubt, the world will be different because you were in it, and certain aspects of the world change because we have lived and worked within it. But you and I are most likely going to be like millions upon millions of other people who have lived throughout history, forgotten. So often, we set our goals in life on being someone or creating something or doing something that will alter the course of humanity. But that's not the task God's given to us. We've been called to be faithful in a few things, and those few things don't get a lot of press. CNN's not here today to record how our worship service went, they don't care but we're being faithful. And it's in those things that we've been called to be faithful that we bring glory to God.
It's in our faithfulness in the ordinary that we have extraordinary life with Christ and, and, and is far more valuable than having our names written in history books or on our products or our designs that they're remembered for hundreds of years to come. We serve a God who reminds us that we are not the central figures in the world. He is. We must decrease that he will increase. Probably for most of us, especially my generation from childhood, we've been told that we can be anything we want to be. We can do everything we want to do. We can make ourselves to be whatever we dream as long as we set our minds to it. We often miss the trees because we're looking for the forest, looking for ambitious causes instead of actual people that God has sent into our lives in that moment, in that hour, on that day, in that year. The you-need-to-go-and-change-the-world mantra isn't helpful at all. In fact, I find it to be quite paralyzing. It's meant to inspire, but it's so unrealistic that it makes me anxious to think I would have to do that. I want to encourage us that we need to stop looking for extraordinary callings to give meaning to our lives, whether we are plumbers or pastors or housewives or the president. As a Christian, we have a calling in our lives to work onto God and not onto man, and in whatever we do, our highest goal, our greatest pursuit is to bring glory to God. And so we don't need an extraordinary calling. We need to live our ordinary Christian lives in extraordinary ways, which means we're living for him. We're living according to his commandments, and we're doing it with thankfulness in our hearts, constantly trusting that he will do what he says he will do, and that he's bringing all things to pass for our good and for his glory. So one of the ways, as the body of Christ, that we are reminded of what Christ has done for us, that we might glorify him is that we are able to eat and drink to the glory of God. And we're able to do that together. And it's through the experience and enjoyment of communion with God and communion with one another. We've talked a, a few weeks ago about the visible, physical elements of the Lord's Supper. That they are helping us to remember what Christ has done in the past, but that it's far greater than just a memory, that we are sharing communion with Christ and with one another in the present, that Christ, in a mysterious way, is spiritually present with us. And it points us forward to the hope that we have because of Christ in the future when we gather with the Son of God at the great wedding feast of the Lamb in the new heavens and in the new earth where we will be fulfilling our purpose unceasingly and perfectly forever and ever that he is glorified in our lives. And we can trust this is true because God is a covenant-keeping God and he never wavers from what he has promised. And so to bring our series to the end, we are communing together with one another and with Christ. And the supper serves to grow us as Christians, to shape us more and more into the image of Christ. 
It's such an ordinary thing, isn't it? Eating and drinking. But it's a powerful thing. It's a thing that God has designed to identify his covenant relationship with us in Jesus Christ. Now, preparation for the Lord's Supper is in itself a very ordinary thing. But it's not an easy thing. It's ensuring that we come on the Lord's Day together with the people of God in our local church reconciled to one another. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul tells the church to examine themselves before and when they take communion in the context of the love that each Christian has for one another in the church. So any hostilities among us must be settled so that we can truly come to the table and commune with one another. That doesn't doesn't mean we won't have differences or disagreements or even things that we need to discuss further, but it does mean at the very least that we will have done what we need to do, that when we come together to the table, that we have at least sought and granted forgiveness, reminding ourselves that we've covenanted together as a body of Christ to love and serve one another. And in doing so, we can't walk away in hostility and bitterness. So part of coming to the table this morning is being reconciled toward others within the local church so that we are truly communing with one another, that we can truly commune with Christ. It's not easy, it's not glamorous, but it's what we're called to do as Christians, living at peace with one another, reconciled in all things, so that he will be glorified. Now, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church. So the proper recipients are only those who are part of the body of Christ. If you've repented of your sin in your life, if you've placed your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, then we welcome you. We invite you and we encourage you to partake. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are in open rebellion against God and unrepentant sin, or if you are under the discipline of a local church, then you should not partake in this meal. But for those of us who are Christians, we need to take time for silent preparation. We need to consider our own hearts. And part of considering our hearts today is am I walking in a life that glorifies God by loving him, by loving our neighbors, by trusting in his promises and giving thanks to him in all circumstances? And am I reconciled to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because no matter what they have said or done to me, it is nothing in comparison to the debt that is owed on behalf of my sin against God. Christ has paid the penalty of our sin in his death, and now we experience the partaking of that which he has given that we might have life. So let's take a few moments to examine our own hearts and then we will pray and eat and drink together.